Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love the smell of great pump in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you left the phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around and pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food! We got no jobs! Our pets' heads are falling off! Go to the coast and get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another episode of Then Is Now. I am your host, Rigor. As we continue to hurdle forward in time, we must not forget all of the cool stuff that has come before. In this episode, I will be once again joined by filmmaker Chris Esper as we continue our journey through the classic Universal Monster movies in our Horror Primer series. Basically, we want to help you to get a young person interested in horror movies, and Universal is the best way to start. People need to know who Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., and John Carradine, among many other stars, are. Last time, we discussed Dracula and all of its sequels. This time around, we're going to tackle The Mummy from 1932 and its four sequels, The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, and The Mummy's Curse. So, if you haven't already, check out The Mummy and its sequels, then come back for our discussion of the movies. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. 
good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Okay, joining me today for the second part of our primer on getting young people into horror movies is filmmaker Chris Esper. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well also. Excellent. So, um, as I said in the intro, last time we took a dive into the into Dracula and its sequels, and this time we're tackling The Mummy and its own sequels. No, no, this is not the horrible Brendan Fraser versions. This is the original Mummy from 1932, starring Boris Karloff and directed by Karl Freund. So, Chris, was this your first introduction to the Universal Mummy movies, or had you seen them before? Yes, this was uh, my first introduction to these movies. Um, this may be actually the only series of the Universal Horror movies I've I've not seen, because I have seen Frankenstein, I've seen Dracula, I've seen The Invisible Man, which is one of my favorites, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like I've seen most of the famous ones, except for this one, so this was totally new for me. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely saw The Mummy as a kid. And, you know, it's funny because growing up, it was my least favorite because I thought it was too slow. Really? But now as an yeah, and but now as an adult, I've grown to love The Mummy movie mm. and, you know, realize how amazing it truly is. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, think, I think if I had seen this as a kid, I probably would have had the same reaction. But seeing it for the first time as an adult... Um, yeah, I mean, I found I found the original to be very enjoyable. Yeah, and it's it's not what you expect either, and we'll, you know we'll get into that in a little bit. And I knew that there were sequels uh, growing up, and maybe I'd seen one or two on late night TV, but it really wasn't until AMC would do their Halloween movie marathons, which yep. I think was around the late '90s, early 2000s, where they showed all of the Universal monster movies, and I, I caught them there. In fact, I think I have them all on a videotape somewhere. Nice, my hundreds of videos. So, um, Boris Karloff, after making a huge splash with his performance as the Frankenstein monster in Frankenstein from 1931, he followed that up with his turn as the mummy. We also have Edward Van Sloan, who played Van Helsing in the Dracula movies, here as Dr. Muller. He was also in Frankenstein as well, so he was kind of a mainstay for the Universal horror films. eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy, is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know, you'll see, you'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on Earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. Oh, my God. 
So, Chris, why don't you give us the plot synopsis of The Mummy from 1932? Sure. So, in 1921, a field expedition in Egypt discovers the mummy of an ancient Egyptian prince, I'm a... Uh, I'm a tip, I'm going to say that wrong, who was <laughs> who was condemned and buried alive for sacrilege. Also found in the tomb is a scroll of troth, which can bring the dead back to life. One night, a young member of the expedition reads the scroll out loud and then goes insane, realizing that he has brought I am uh, <laughs> I hold tip back to life. Ten years later, disguised as a modern Egyptian, the mummy attempts to reunite with his lost love, an ancient princess, who has been reincarnated into a beautiful young woman. It's I, I've always heard it as Imhotep. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this movie was directed by Carl Freund. I, I, again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's either Freund or it's spelled F-R-E-U-N-D. I would say Freund, but it could be Freund. And he, he came from a German expressionistic background. He's got more credits as a cinematographer than as a director. But one of his other movies that st stood out to me is the fantastic picture Mad Love from 1935 starring uh, Peter Laurie. Yeah, that's that's what I have to see. Yeah, I think that was one of his best performances, or at least in his top five. Mm -hmm. um, you know what was cool, though, when I what I learned in my research, and you probably learned this too. Now, I always knew that Desi Arnaz was the one who kind of came up with the three-camera system for shooting TV shows. Yep. But it was really the genius of Carl Froon who developed it for them. I was just going to say, yep, he, w he, was, yeah. he was the go-to DP for I, Lo I Love Lucy. Yeah. And up to that point, you know, when they shot TV shows, they would shoot them live with one camera. And then the whole thing was covered with a video camera in a process called kinescope. So while the East Coast would get the live feed of a show, the West Coast would get the kinescope version. And uh, Desilu Studios, which was run, of course, by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, they didn't like the quality of kinescope and they wanted to shoot on film. And Froon agreed with this and helped devise the three-camera system, which is still an industry standard today, I, I think. Uh, no, it is. And also, um, even the way that show w um, uh, had been lit uh, was another innovation because he would do a lot of film lighting for the entire show, which now is a standard in sitcoms. Not so much the film lighting, but that studio lighting set up with grids and with uh, backlights and that sort of thing. I, I mean, I Love Lucy was a innovative sitcom in that sense because it set the standard for what, what would come later. Right. And it was just amazing to, to learn that this guy had, had a hand in that and yeah. was really creative. Yeah. I mean, to go from these universal horror classics to one of the great comedy shows of all time. I mean, what a switch, and it's incredible. Yeah. And uh, and, you, and you know something about him, too, that uh, many don't realize is that he was also an uncredited director for the original Dracula. Oh, okay. I, that I did not know. Yeah, so I thought that was rather interesting that uh, he has sort of that uncredited uh, credit there, but this movie is considered his feature directorial debut. And you know what? I have to say... This is probably the best-looking universal horror movie I've seen because, I mean, just the lighting, the shots, uh, his shot composition, his camera movement, it's perfection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was funny because it was one of those movies that, as a kid, it confused me because I was expecting the mummy, you know, walking around yeah. in bandages. And we, we only get that at the very beginning. And, uh, it, yeah. you know, he takes the bandages off and he becomes uh, Ardith Bay. Yeah. Which, if I don't know if you knew this, but Ardith, the name Ardith Bay is an anagram for death by Ra. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, and well, the interesting too, the interesting thing too, as well, is that um, the mummy, uh, the mummy himself, under that name, I'm gonna get it wrong again. So remind me again. 
Imhotep? Imhotep, thank you. Imhotep, <laughs> the, that character would not appear in another Mummy movie until the 1999 remake. Right. Which, yeah, and that was Arnold Vosloo who played him, right? Uh, I think so. I'm not entirely sure, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was him. Which he was good in that movie, even though I didn't really care for that film. But yeah, and it, it just Karloff did such a great job, and the whole premise of him trying to, you know, bring back his his beloved, it really worked, and he he was very creepy in this. Yes, he is, and I mean, and of course, you have those famous shots that are close-ups of his face are just staring right into the camera. I mean, it's uh, there's something that's very menacing about it, you know, even even today looking at it that that shot every time it comes up i'm like i'm like man you know that that's a, it's like it's one of those shots where you've seen it a million times even if you don't know where it's from you've seen it before it's just an iconic shot right absolutely and uh, of course that was jack pierce's makeup for the mummy oh and yeah it's just yep incredible yeah it's it's almost too bad that they didn't have him be more of the bandaged mummy but i i didn't think it needed it i thought that this surprisingly worked the way they did the, the yeah. story. And, you know, I couldn't help but feel like, and it's funny because uh, Karlov did this the year after he had done Frankenstein, uh, and he was heavily advertised as a star come this because he was unknown virtually before Frankenstein. I couldn't, right. I couldn't help but feel like his look when when he is in human, uh, when he's in human form, he looked like uh, Frankenstein a little bit. I don't know if it's because I know that it's Boris Karloff, but he had a very Frankensteinian monster look to him uh, in those scenes. Yeah, I I wonder because in Frankenstein he had he had some bridge work done on his teeth and he had that removed so it gave his cheeks the sunken look and I wonder if he did that for this movie. I didn't see that anywhere, but yeah. It it gives that same the same look to his face. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too is like uh I I it, I may not be uh too crazy for saying that either because there seems to be a commonality I noticed between all these movies, you know, between Dracula the mummy and even Frankenstein to a certain extent, uh, the idea of the dead being reanimated and coming back, all these movies have that sort of weird commonality to it, I've noticed, upon watching these. Right. Right. And one other thing, I don't know if I mentioned this in our last episode uh, where we talked about the Dracula films, but there's a concept that I stole from another podcaster where when you look at the universal, the classic, the main, the main group of monsters, you've got, you know, the Wolfman, or first we'll start with Frankenstein, where he's he's born and c created. He he doesn't understand anything. He's like it's like infancy and in, in childhood. Yeah. And then you've got the Wolfman, who is like adolescence, where his emotions are out of control and yeah. his body is changing, and he can't. You know, he's trying to get all that under control. Then you've got Dracula who's a man that's grown up. He's suave. He likes to control women. He's the kind of guy that some guys would like to be, you know, to be as cool as Dracula. Sure. And then you've got the mummy, which represents old age. Yeah. And that's, and that, I thought... That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, that's really a good way yeah. to look at it. I never, never thought of it that way. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And then, of course, you've got the creature from the Black Lagoon, where I guess that's when you were in the high school swim team. I, I, I guess so. And then the Invisible Man, <laughs> I, I, the Invisible Man, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know where you categorize that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's probably you know every kid has a fantasy of having a superpower, and you know that could be go. one of them. There you go. Or you could, you could rob banks, or and nobody could see you. Right, or feeling invisible to the one that you that you love. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, feeling um, like you're not noticed by peers and friends and all that. That's very true. Yeah. 
Did you notice too that uh, this uses the same music as in Dracula, the opening music of Swan Lake? Yes, I did notice that, yeah. Yeah, upon first viewing, I was like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll find in a lot of these these movies, they reuse stuff. Like in, in one of the later ones that we're going to talk about today, they reused yeah. music from the, the Wolfman. Not to mention footage, a lot of it. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. So uh, definitely of all the Mummy movies that Universal put out, this is the best one. And it, I, like you said, I think this stands up there with Dracula and Frankenstein. I would the agree. Is yeah. A classic. I, my favorite scene is where the guy reads the scroll and the mummy comes to life. And he, in role-playing game terms, as I've talked about uh, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game on the show before, he basically failed his sanity check. And he just loses his mind and starts laughing maniacally at the fact that the mummy just got up and went for a walk. <laughs> What's the matter, man? What is it? He, he, he went for a little walk. <laughs> you should have seen his face. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a scene. Yeah, um... I had that same effect in, see, in seeing that uh, in that moment. Uh, that that was a great scene. Yeah. And, you know, in doing my research, I found a review that really pissed me off because it was basically saying that this movie was unintentionally funny and mom and dad and the kids should sit on the couch, watch it, and laugh through it. And I'm, I totally disagreed with that. I didn't find anything funny about this I, movie. I thought it was atmospheric and damn chilling yeah no i didn't find anything funny about this either i i don't know where i don't know where where that person quite got that i thought that was really irritating but but yeah so the mummy you know it, it led itself it actually wasn't until eight years later that there was the first sequel so we'll get into that you know and it's funny i've i've always in the past i've always had trouble remembering what orders the sequels were in yeah and eventually i came up with an easy way to remember it so you've got mummy's hand mummy's tomb Mummy's Ghost and Mummy's Curse. So the way I would remember the order, which that's the order they're in, is coming off of the first movie, you've got the Mummy's Hand because the Mummy's still alive. Yeah. When the Mummy dies, it goes to the tomb. So you've got Hand and Tomb. And then after death, you become a ghost. And then beyond death, you have a curse. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I, I advise people at home, listeners at home, to maybe try and use that method to remember the sequels. Uh, even though some of them are probably forgettable. Yeah. <laughs> At least the order. Um, so we've got four movies that we're going to cover here. And so we're probably not going to go through the entire cast of each film, with the exception of the ones that stand out to, to myself or you, Chris. And, right. You know, obviously chime in at, at whatever point. Uh, sure. If there's something that you want to talk about. Sure. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from... 
Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel OSI 74 to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. So let's start with The Mummy's Hand, which I would say is perhaps the strongest of the sequels. I agree. Yep. If I say I think you're a swell person. Hmm? You're very beautiful. So beautiful, I'm going to make you immortal. Hey, where's the girl? Well, you'll never see her again. I'll give you three to tell me where she is. I'm not kidding. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. In Egypt, Andoheb travels to the hill of the seven jackals in answer to the royal summons of the high priest of Karnak. The dying priest of the sect explains the story of Karis to Andoheb involving sacred tana leaves that can restore life to the dead princess Ananka. His penalty upon being discovered is to be buried alive without a tongue, and the tana leaves are buried with him. During the cycle of the full moon, the fluid from the brew of the three tana leaves is to be administered to the creature to keep him alive. Should despoilers enter the tomb of the princess, a fluid of nine leaves will restore movement to the monster. Meanwhile, in 1940, down-on-his-luck archaeologist Steve Banning and his sidekick Babe Jensen discover the remnants of a broken vase in a Cairo bazaar. Banning is convinced that it's authentic ancient Egyptian relic and his interpretation of the hieroglyphs on the piece lead him to believe it contains clues to the location of the Princess Ananka's tomb. With the support of the eminent Dr. Petrie of the Cairo Museum, but against the wishes of Andoheb, who is also employed by the museum, Banning seeks funds for his expedition. Banning and Jensen meet an American magician, Salvani, who agrees to fund their quest. His daughter, Marta, is not as convinced, thanks to a prior visit from Andoheb, who brands the two young archaeologists as frauds. The expedition departs in search of the Hill of the Seven Jackals, with the Salvanis tagging along. In their explorations, they stumble upon the tomb of Karis, finding the mummy along with the tana leaves, but find nothing to indicate the existence of Ananka's tomb. Andoheb appears to Dr. Petri in the mummy's cave and has the surprised scientists feel the creature's pulse. After administering the tana brew from the nine leaves, the monster quickly dispatches Petri and escapes with Andoheb through a secret passageway to the temple on the other side of the mountain. The creature continues his periodic marauding about the camp, killing an Egyptian overseer and eventually attacking Salvani and kidnapping Marta. 
Banning and Jensen set out to track Karis down with Jensen going around the mountain and Banning attempting to follow the secret passageways they've discovered inside the tomb. Andoheb has plans of his own. Enthralled by Marta's beauty, he plans to inject himself and his captive with Tana fluid, making them both immortal. Jensen arrives in the nick of time and gun down, guns down Andoheb outside of the temple, while Banning attempts to rescue the girl. However, Karis appears on the scene, and Banning's bullets have no effect on the immortal being. Marta overheard Andoheb tell the secret of the Tana fluid and tells Banning and Jensen that Karis must not be allowed to drink any more of the serum. When the creature raises the Tana serum to his lips, Jensen shoots the container from his grasp. Dropping to the floor, Karis attempts to ingest the spilled life-giving liquid. Banning seizes the opportunity to overturn a brazier on the monster, engulfing it in flames. The ending has members of the expedition heading happily back to the United States with the mummy of Ananka and the spoils of her tomb. So what, you, what was your first impression of The Mummy's Hand? Well, I have to say, um, I agree with you that I think this is the um, probably the best sequel out of the bunch. It was a lot of fun. I thought it was also refreshing in that it was funny. Very funny movie, actually. Uh, like, intentionally funny, I'm saying. Uh, not yeah, unintentionally. Yep. Particularly the character Wallace Ford, uh, Wallace Ford's character of, ba- of Babe Jensen. I, he stole the show from me, and he was terrific. And... Uh, in looking at his his credits, I realized, or I didn't realize rather, is that he's in two Hitchcock pictures, Spellbound and Shadow of a Doubt, and he's also in Freaks. Uh, so I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's interesting. I I liked uh, the character of Babe and Steve. I thought they were kind of a more capable Abbott and Costello. Yeah. They didn't really, they didn't get into any vaudeville routines or anything like that. But if there was a fight. They weren't running from the fight. They were going to, you know, stand their ground and defend themselves. And I, I loved that about this movie. I did too, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I did find it kind of odd that uh, the mummy didn't really show up until maybe 55 minutes in. And this movie's only an hour and seven minutes long. But right. <laughs> the, the characters were at least interesting, uh, even if the plot wasn't uh, that interesting. They were funny. They were great characters. And well, this is one of the first movies where I noticed that a lot of stock footage is used. And apparently Universal's motto was, why restage and reshoot something if, we, if we've already got it in the can? I'm like, okay, all right. right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> but, but no, I, I, I really enjoyed this one. I thought this one was a lot of fun. I thought it was a very worthy follow-up to the original, even if it doesn't have the same seriousness or lore as as the original i i thought this was a lot of fun yeah one thing i read about this movie was um that it it went with substance over style where the first one was very stylish this was had more substance to it yes and that's owed to the director christy caban who was um you know he worked a lot for uh, various uh, movies doing you know lower lo- lower level studios I should say um, but then in the 1930s his fortunes picked up and he did quite a bit of work at Universal but then of course his career took a nose di- nosedive and he started cranking out cheap westerns shoddy jungle pictures and yeah. limp horror films for the likes <laughs> of like Monogram and sure. Screen Guild uh, it was written by Griffin J who also wrote The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Ghost as well as Cry of the Werewolf in 44 and Captive Wild Woman in 43. Um, so I thought it was interesting we'll probably talk a little bit more about the writing when we get to the next movie or two. Yeah. So you've got Dick Foran as Steve Banning. He was kind of a matinee idol of B movies. He did a lot of westerns and TV shows. I think in looking at his filmography the biggest movie he was in was Donovan's Reef in 63. Ah. I think. Yeah. 
But And you mentioned Wallace Ford as Babe Jensen. He had a really interesting history. I thought it was very fascinating. He was born in England. His name was Samuel Jones. And for whatever reason, he got separated from his parents and ended up in an orphanage. So wow. when he was a kid, they sent him to a Toronto branch of the orphanage, which was in obviously Canada. And that began a cycle where he ended up living in like 17 foster homes, the longest being with a farm family that treated him like a slave. So at age 11, he ran away and joined a vaudeville troupe called the Winnipeg Kitties. Um, he stayed with them until 1914. Then he joined a friend named Wallace Ford, and the two hoboed their way into the U.S. And after his friend, whose name was Wallace Ford, was crushed to death by a railroad car, Sam Jones took that name, and uh, that became his name now, so he became Wallace Ford in memory of his friend. Wow. And he started working in uh, you know, theatrical troops, repertory companies, and eventually going into motion pictures. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it was really that's, fascinating. That's quite a story. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, I, I, like... I can't even imagine, but wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, like I said, yeah, he, he for me was the best character in the movie because he was funny. I got a, I, for some reason, I got a huge laugh when he, when, when they're in the middle of the desert at night and he's, and he's like talking to the moon or whatever. And he's like he's like saying like or like or like he hears like howls in the night. He's like saying, "Eh, shut up or be quiet." It's something about that was just funny the way he delivers that. Absolutely, and it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember that scene too. And he, if that was Lou Costello, he would have been scared because he heard the the yeah. the wolf. Yeah. But in this, he was like, "Ah, eh, shut up," yeah. you know. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and you know it's funny. This, so this movie came out in 1940, of course, uh, which is like the year before uh wolfman i couldn't help but feel like there's a bit of a precursor going on there to wolfman uh all these movies uh for mummy because like there are references to the moon coming out and that's when the mummy comes out i'm like okay interesting this so there's a bit of wolfman sort of uh rules if you will going on here as to how this stuff works yeah i agree and i wonder if you know kurt shodmack who wrote the rc odmack who wrote the wolfman was influenced by this if he had seen this right. I imagine yeah. he did I just love the fact, too, that, you know, don't give him more than nine Tana leaves or, you know, he's going to become an uncontrollable right, monster right. with a lust for killing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, why nine? <laughs> right. <laughs> One thing I noticed, too, that was interesting, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the time frame works out, is that we had done a show, or I had done a show um, about spook shows, which were these, they were performances that were usually played at movie theaters after the movies were, uh, the regular movies were shown. So this would be like at midnight. And you had this magician who would do all these crazy things on stage. And then, you know, the lights would go out and uh, they used uh, like trick paint, uh, uh, like glow in the dark paint and stuff to make you think that ghosts were flying around. Mm -hmm. and they would do these fake seances. And then at the end, they would show a horror movie and the monsters would come off the stage. So these were hugely popular from the 30s uh, into the 70s. And one of the guys who was like a major performer in these spook shows, his name was Salvini. And I wonder if the character of the magician Salvani in this movie was sort of named after him. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Okay. So I just thought, I, I definitely think there was an influence there because I think the Salvini was um, popular at the time sure. during these spook shows. Sure, yeah. Um, and a couple of other actors I'd like to mention that we've got is, uh, of course, George Zuko, who plays uh, Ando Heb, 
and he's an amazing character actor. He was in like almost a hundred movies. Wow. He, he such as you know the Cat in the Canary, the Mad Monster, Dead Men Walk. He's he's one of those fan favorites that we may have to profile at some point. Sure. And then of course Tom Tyler played Karis, the Mummy, and this guy was a champion weightlifter. And he was known for being in just tons of movie serials and westerns. And it was basically his large physique that lent himself to playing the mummy so menacingly in this movie. He had a great presence as the mummy, I felt. I was impressed. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the first movie in which we see the fully wrapped mummy as a villain. Right. Yeah, that's true. So that kind of that set the standard pretty high, I think. It's too bad that they couldn't keep up with that. Yeah. <laughs> but did you notice the interesting effect that they did? I guess they were, for whatever reason, they didn't have, uh, you know, contact lens uh, technology or anything. So they literally matted out his eyes and just made them look black. I thought that was really? kind of a weak spot. In the I movie. I would have to look at that again. I did not. I, but you know what? I did read up some trivia that that they did that frame by frame, which I can imagine how painstaking that must have been to do that frame by frame to black out the eyes, but. Uh, I'll have to look closely again, uh, but uh, when I read that bit of trivia, I found that interesting to have to do that uh, one frame at a time, because that's, that's painstaking work. Yeah, yeah, so they just painted over it. That's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy, yeah. And they reused a lot of the footage of him, the mummy, uh, Karis, uh, the close-up of him coming towards whoever the intended victim was. Yes, yeah. And that's really where you can see the eyes, the, right. the change. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed that about a lot of these movies is that there is a lot of, particularly with these movies, not so much with Dracula or some of the other ones, with this series in particular, there's a lot of reused footage a lot of the time, I've noticed, in these sequels. Definitely, and of course you have to have the scene where the monster's carrying away the woman. Yes. I, it's <laughs> become a trope, I think, at this point. <laughs> it, it, it has. Um, it's a classic trope, but yes. <laughs> And, you know, I love the fact that, that Steve and Babe are just these intelligent archaeologists. It it just lent so much more to the characters, I thought. It does, yeah. And, you know, and again, these are interesting characters because not only are they smart, but they're humorous. And, they ha and the two actors, as the two characters, they have terrific chemistry. Oh, definitely. And again, like I said, they're, they're not a low-rent Abbott and Costello. They're really nothing like Abbott and Costello. No. It, except, you know, one skinny and one's a little heavier. That's and it. That's about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. That's it exactly. Yeah, but uh, you know, and uh, jumping ahead of, uh, just a little bit, the 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 interesting thing is like they reprised their roles in the next movie, The Mummy's Tomb. Uh, you know, and for the most part, a lot of these movies are direct sequels to each other. Whereas this movie has very little to do with the original Mummy, other than its title and the fact that it's a mummy. I, I, know, right. I noticed that, which I thought was rather interesting. How it's sort of spun off into a series of its own that has very little to do with the original. Right, right. And it, you almost didn't need it. I think the original was a good self-contained story. It, it was, so, absolutely. Yeah, so having this be in the same universe, just with different characters and a different mummy, I think I thought that worked very I agree. well to the strength of this film. I agree, yeah. One of the scenes that I really loved was when Babe and Andoheb are facing off, and Andoheb's basically like, you're not going to shoot me, and then yes. boom, he shoots him. <laughs> he shoots him, yeah. yeah. There's a lot I of... did not expect that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, there were a lot of moments where I was genuinely laughing out loud than, than I expected to, mostly because of uh, of Babe Jensen and, and Steve Banning, because they were both great characters, again. Yeah, and I just love that he didn't have any moral qualms about it. This guy was the villain, and he's going to kill us, and so, boom. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, man, but one scene that I thought was kind of gross was when 
they had knocked the tana juice on the floor. They're trying to save the girl. And the mummy, like, gets down on, on the floor, and he's licking it off the floor. Yeah, yeah, that was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty gross. But uh, so getting to the end of the movie, obviously that was a great scene, great fight scene with the mummy, and yep. like you shoot him and it doesn't work, and yeah. fuck, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yep. then, of course, Babe goes, "Oh, just like a woman, when the shooting's all over, they pass out." And of course, he passes out. <laughs> yeah, of course, he passes out. Yep. Mm-hmm. And of course, like every other Universal horror movie, it, it has to end in a fire <laughs> of some right. kind. <laughs> Right. And it ends, they end them so quickly, like they just end. You know, Steve gets the telegram that says he got, he got promoted and his boss got demoted and that was it. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) So, all right. So let's get into, well, do you have any final words on The Mummy's Hand? No, I, I, again, I thought this was a great sequel, uh, um, pretty solid sequel. And in my opinion, the best one of the bunch of the sequels. I agree. I agree. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. Hey, folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, PodParadise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out.
So let's move on to The Mummy's Tomb from 1942. So, and let's think about this too. The Mummy's Hand came out eight years after the first one. Right. So they sort of had a lull in Universal where they didn't think their horror movies were doing that well. And it was, um, I may have mentioned it in the last episode, They there was a theater owner who replayed uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, and they were huge hits for yeah. him. So that's sort of when Universal around 1940 started to realize, oh, you know, we probably should be doing more horror movies. Right, yeah. So you've got The Mummy's Tomb from 1942. Spawned from the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror by the master of menace, Lon Chaney as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in the mummy's tomb. that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. The Mummy's Tomb picks up the story of Karis 30 years after the conclusion of The Mummy's Hand. One evening in the fictional town of Mapleton, Massachusetts, Steve Banning recounts the story of Karis to his family and evening guests in his home. And of course, they use flashback footage from The Mummy's Hand as Banning's telling the tale. He concludes his narrative of the successful destruction of the creature. The scene switches back to the tombs of Egypt. Surviving their supposed demise, Ando Heb explains the legend of Karis to his follower, Mehemet Bey, played by Turhan Bey. After passing on the instructions for the use of the Tana leaves and assigning the task of terminating the remaining members of the Banning expedition and their descendants, Ando Heb expires. Bey and Karis leave Egypt for the journey to the U.S., Bay takes the caretaker's job at Mapleton Cemetery, sets up shop, and administers the Tana brew to Karis. The monster sets out to avenge the desecration of Ananka's tomb. His first victim is Steve Banning, whom the creature kills the aging archaeologist as he's preparing for bed. As the sheriff and coroner can't come up with a lead to the killer, newspapermen converge on Mapleton to learn more about the story. Babe Hansen arrives on the scene after learning of his friend's death. When Jane Banning, Steve's sister, is killed, Hansen's convinced it's the work of a mummy. Meeting with the sheriff and a coroner, Hansen is unable to convince them of the identity of the culprit. He tells his story to a newspaper man at the local bar, but is himself dispatched by Karis almost immediately afterwards. Dr. John Banning enlists the help of Professor Norman to solve the puzzle of the grayish mark found on the victim's throats. Norman's test results prove that Hansen was right. The substance was indeed mold from a mummy. Meanwhile, Bay has plans of his own. Knowing that Banning and his girlfriend, Isabel Evans, are planning to marry, he sets out to disrupt, the, to, to disrupt their nuptials. Bay himself has become smitten with Isabel and sends Karis on a mission to bring her to him. Karis initially balks, but finally adheres to Bay's command. In the dark of the night, the monster stealthily enters the Evans' home and abducts the fainting girl to the cemetery caretaker's hut. Bay unveils his plan to the reluctant Isabel that she is to become his bride as a high priest of Karnak and bear him an heir to the royal line. 
Banning and the rest of the townspeople have become convinced that their recent Egyptian immigrant may be involved in the crimes. Arriving in force, they confront Bay outside the hut. Kara slips away with Isabel, unbeknownst to the horde, and Bay attempts to shoot Banning, but is himself gunned down by the sheriff. The creature is observed heading toward the Banning estate, and the group begins pursuit, many bearing torches. Inside the home, Banning holds Karis at bay with a torch while he rescues Isabel from the mummy's grasp, but inadvertently sets fire to some curtains. With the aid of the sheriff and coroner, John and Isabel escape via a trellis as Karis pursues them out onto the upstairs balcony. The townspeople keep the mummy from similarly escaping by hurling additional torches at him, and the monster perishes in the flames of the thoroughly consumed house. Banning and Isabel wed in short order, and he has received his draft notice and is due to report for his tour of duty in World War II. So what are your first thoughts on uh, The Mummy's Tomb? Um, I found this one to be slightly frustrating for me because a quarter of it is basically reused footage from what we've already seen with Mummy's Hand. And maybe it's because I watched these two back to back, but I found it really frustrating because I'm, cause I thought the whole movie was going to be this. <laughs> Just uh, Banning sitting in the living room recounting the, <laughs> recounting the events of the, fir- of the preceding movie, uh, sorry, of the former movie, and going back and forth. I mean, thankfully it wasn't that the whole way, but I think after you get past that, I did enjoy the rest of it. I mean, it was kind of oddly paced, I felt, because some scenes were either too fast or too slow. But I did enjoy that it became like sort of a Bride of story, much like uh, Bride of Frankenstein or, you know, some of the other ones like that, where where the mummy is, you know, going after um, the Egyptian. So, and again, you know, it's great to see Steve Banning back, and it's great to see Babe uh, Jensen back, and... Lon Chaney Jr., you know, it's great to have him as as the mummy, although I thought his presence was kind of wasteful because he didn't really have much to do, unfortunately. Right, right. And I think I think ba- uh, Steve Banning and, and Babe Jensen uh, were, were wasted in this movie I also. Agree. Like you yep. said, he spent too much time discussing the past. At least Babe Jensen, you know, got to be able to try and explain what was going on sure. and convince the people, but then he's killed in short order. And I, that really annoyed me. Yeah. That annoyed me too. And well, and you know, and I, I mean, I thought the ending was at least exciting, but I mean, overall, I kind of thought it was, uh, not awful, just kind of, kind of, mon- kind of a mundane effort. I did find it kind of funny how this takes place 30 years later. So, in, yeah. so in theory, this would be 1970 if that's the case. Right. And obviously it looks nothing like the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> right. It still looks like the 40s. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, but, man. but, but uh, overall, yeah, no, not, you know, not a bad movie, just not one of the best ones of the series I felt. Right. Right. You know, I walked in expecting to totally hate this movie because I hadn't, I haven't seen these in quite a while and I didn't totally hate it. I, you know, like we said, there were a lot of weak points and the pacing was off, but it, it, it wasn't as good, obviously, as the mummy's hand, but it was enjoyable. It was enough. enjoyable. Yeah. And, you know, again, it was nice to see some of the cast members in the last movie come back and, it was great to see the story sort of continue, and I do like the addition of Steve Banning's son and seeing that legacy continue, and uh, so that was all good and fine. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, there was an interesting line by the cop. He says, uh, this must be one of those theme murders. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tried looking that up, and he must mean like a serial killer, would you say? Yeah, I would I would say so. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't look it up myself, but uh, yeah, that seems like a reference to a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, because I couldn't find anything. If, every time I, f- I found something, it was, you know, like theme parties and stuff like that. <laughs> it was nothing to do with 
must be one of them theme murders. That's right. But I was shocked when the mummy kills the old lady. I did not expect that that they would have an old lady get killed. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> expect that either. <laughs> so when the when the wolfman, I'm sorry, when the mummy attacks Babe Jensen, we hear the wolfman music kick in. So there we go, some more recycling. Yep, some more recycling music. Yep. <laughs> I just thought that John Banning and Isabel were especially towards the end of the movie, they were awfully cheerful considering both his parents were just murdered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did notice that, that, um, that they were awfully cheery after that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. But I get, you know, I guess that's, you're in a fast paced or a short horror movie. You got to do everything quickly. I was just so. going to say this. I was amazed how short this was at only literally an hour long. Actually, I think, I think uh, this one and the following two movies are also just just short of an hour long. Right. Which, and uh, as we, we'll get into it, but I, I found it painful to get through the next two movies. Yeah, <laughs> it Just too. an hour seemed like me, three hours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sad to say, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so just wrapping this up here, I thought there was a great scene where uh, Isabel is, she wakes up on the slab and the bad guy's standing there, and she doesn't look at him right away. And you could tell that she's expecting to see the mummy. And she just slowly looks over, like almost like shielding her face. And then she sees that it's the human. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a nice piece of acting. I thought there. that was a nice piece of acting. And, you know, that, and so that was good because this one had, I noticed this one relied a lot less on humor than Mummy's Hand did, uh, which I thought was a strange choice given that. It is supposedly a follow-up to follow-up to to um, to Mummy's Hand, so you would think stylistically it would be somewhat similar. But this one was actually a bit more serious. I found. I don't know how you felt. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There was not a lot of humor in this movie. It, I just feel like it would have been better served if the story was, you know, maybe only like five years later. Yes. And Stephen and Babe have to team up again to stop the the mummy who's come to America now. You know, that would have been cool. Yeah, that, that would have been cool, yeah. And I, I, I think just by watching this, you could sort of tell that there was, that you could sort of tell that this was severely rushed into production because there seemed to be very little script and very little budget, um, you know, hence why almost a quarter of it is flashbacks. Uh, so so you could, you could tell this was kind of a rushed uh, project because, I mean, again, like you said, Universal probably saw this as an opportunity to go back to horror after they saw how well the re-releases of their others had done. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I did think one scene was really cool. It was shot very well where the, the angry um, the angry townspeople are running through the graveyard yes. to try and catch the mummy. Yep. yep, that, yeah, that whole sequence with the ending, all that was great. That was terrific. It was, you know, it's what the whole movie should have been like, in my opinion. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, you... You have to not think too hard about these movies because yes. in the last one, he was burned to a crisp. Yes, and, but then he's back. He's back, and yeah. and then he gets burned again in gets this one, again. only to show up in the next yep. movie. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, again, I mean that's sort of a trope of horror movies as well as uh, you know, even with some of the more modern uh, contemporary horror movies, um, that same concept of oh, you know, we've killed the villain, but now he's back in the sequel. Like, how many times can you kill, can you kill Freddy or Jason? How many times can you kill Chucky the doll? And they're going to come back again. Right. So. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, yeah, we had George Zuko reprise his role as Ando Hebb, so I thought that was cool. Yep. And uh, obviously uh, Dick Foran and uh, Wallace Ford sure. reprised their roles. Uh, Lon Chaney does a good job. I thought they, the one thing about this movie is that the mummy was in the shadows quite a bit. 
and I thought that helped uh, create the the atmosphere. I thought so too. Yeah, I mean, it's just a shame that um, Lon Chaney's presence wasn't more known because had I not read the credits, I would have forgotten that was him and that was him in that. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not, but I mean, he's ever, he he seemed heavily advertised as being the leading man in this, so I was a bit surprised uh, going into it that it was him, and then I came out of it. I had forgotten it was him until I saw the credits again. Yeah, it must have been a, a like a stunt to get people to come see the movie because, I mean, he wasn't at the point in his career where he was slumming it. He was pretty high he was up, pretty but high it, up, yeah. didn't it seem like he was slumming it for these movies? I thought, he, I thought so, yeah. And you know what? There have been rumors uh, in doing my research. There are rumors, apparently, that it's not actually Lon Chaney, but it's a stunt double. But the director of this confirmed no, uh, that, no, it is indeed Lon Chaney doing it although in some of the later movies uh one of the actresses i don't remember which movie it was but one of the actresses had said that he was so drunk when doing one of the movies that when carrying her she nearly fell fell off his arms because he was so drunk (laughs) (laughs) oh man oh that's hilarious so all right chris final thoughts on uh the mummy's tomb uh not one of the better ones not awful but um it's pretty it's pretty low if i were to do like a like a ranking this would be pretty low for me on my list right right i agree i I couldn't say it any better it's it's a you know it's a decent monster movie but it does waste a lot of time with flashbacks and uneven pacing yes but still you know little kids might like it I think my grandson watched part of it, and he he just oh, loved really? it when the mummy was on the screen. Yeah. So. Well, and well, yeah. that's the thing is that um, you know, and this is the same issue I had with Mummy's Hand as well is that for someone who's younger who who's going just to see the monster, I think they might be a little bit disappointed because in both this movie and also Mummy's Head, we don't get the monster until very late into the picture. Right. Right. Yeah. It's. I just wonder what was going through their heads. You know, obviously back then they really didn't expect that people would be rewatching these movies, you know, 70 years later. Yeah. But they, they just was very little attempt at continuity. This one had some bit of continuity with Steve and Babe. It did. Yeah. But I don't know. And it's just written by the well, same guy, too. You know, and it's a shame because this really, for the first time, this felt like an assembly line picture where Universal's like, okay, we got we got to crank this one out and this one out. So it was very much like, okay, you know, use the same same writers, same everything, and use a system for how the story should go. Because a lot of these, I, I think from this movie to the last one, Mummy's Curse, a lot of these movies, they started to blend for me because a lot of them felt very much the same for some reason. Right. It was just exactly what you said. And also, too, I believe that a lot of people were... If they were under contract and they still had, you know, one or two more pictures to make, say with Universal, for example, they would just go, all right, yeah, I'll They're do obligated. this crappy, right. crappy movie and then yeah. get it over with, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not like today um, with the way the movie system works. When you were under contract at the time, you had an obligation to fill. It's like, okay, well, this is, you know, studio will be like, okay, this is our stock star. We got to give them a picture to do. And they'll, they'll just come up with anything. Right. Right. I agree. So, all right, so Mummy's uh, Mummy's Tomb, not the greatest, but nope. it's an okay monster movie. It's an okay monster movie, yeah. <laughs> Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. 
Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. All right, so let's move on to the third sequel, which is The Mummy's Ghost from 1944. There's no thief that killed Ben, Mrs. Evans, and nothing human tore through that wall. I'll take her back, Harris. Together we're going to our camp. I swear it. You can't go in that swamp. It's certain death. Let go of me. Andoheb, the aging high priest of Arkham, which was called uh, Karnak in the previous films, has summoned Yusuf Bey to the Temple of Arkham to pass on the duties of high, of high priest. Beforehand, Andoheb explains the legend of Karis to Bey. Meanwhile, in Mapleton, Massachusetts, Professor Matthew Norman, who had examined one of Karis's missing bandage pieces during the mummy's last spree through Mapleton, also explains the legends of the priests of Arkham and Karis to his history class, who are less than believing. After the lecture ends, one of the students, Tom Hervey, meets up with his girlfriend, Anna Mansori, a beautiful woman of Egyptian descent. However, a strange, clouded feeling in her mind occurs whenever the subject of Egypt is mentioned. Back in Egypt, Andoheb informs Yusuf Bey that Karis still lives and that Yusuf's, Yusuf's mission is to retrieve Karis and the body of Ananka and return them to their rightful resting place in Egypt. Yusuf Bey pledges his devotion before Andoheb explains that during each full moon, Yusuf Bey is to brew the fluid from nine tana leaves. Karis will sense this and will find the leaves wherever they are. The moon is full in Mapleton as Professor Norman studies the hieroglyphs on a case of tana leaves. He has deciphered the message about brewing nine tana leaves during the full moon and decides to do just that. The battered, ragged form of Karis, however, senses the brewing leaves and heads towards them. On the way, he passes the home of Amina, and she follows him in a trance-like state. Karis soon arrives at the home of Professor Norman, strangles him, and drinks the fluid of tana leaves. Amina sees Karis, which snaps her out of her trance, but also causes her to faint. She falls to the ground with a strange birthmark now apparent on her wrist. 
The next morning, the sheriff and coroner discover strange mold around the dead professor's throat, a sign they both know to mean that the mummy stalks Mapleton once again. Sheriff Elwood questions Amina, who is dazed, but Tom Hervey arrives and tries to provide an alibi for her. The sheriff finally dismisses the pair, and Tom takes her home. Later, Yusuf Bey, who has arrived in Mapleton, calls on Amon Ra to aid him in his quest and begins to brew the sacred fluid of the Tana leaves to summon Karis. Karis senses the leaves and heads towards them, murdering a helpless farmer along the way. The sheriff soon arrives on the scene and organizes a search party. The next day, at the Scripps Museum, Yusuf Bey lags behind a tour group viewing the mummy of Ananka. After closing time, Yusuf emerges from a hiding place as Karis breaks into the museum. Karis attempts to touch the mummified body, but it disintegrates under the wrapping as his hand approaches. Yusuf Bey realizes that Ananka's soul has been reincarnated into another form. Karis is enraged and begins destroying the exhibit, attracting the museum security guard who is mercilessly slaughtered by Karis. Police Inspector Walgreen and Dr. Ayad from the museum are bewildered as to how Ananka's body has disappeared without disturbing the wrappings. Dr. Ayad matches markings on the tomb to those on a cask of Tana leaves, and Inspector Walgreen decides to use the leaves to attract and capture cars. The plan is to build a pit to confine the creature until a way can, to deal with him can be found. Amina is still unable to shake the haunted feelings that torture her, and, and Tom, disregarding the sheriff's warnings, asks Amina to elope with him to New York. She agrees, and the two make plans to leave early the next morning. Meanwhile, Yusuf Bey calls upon Amon-Ra to lead him to the new home of Ananka's soul, and then sends Karis in that direction to find Ananka. Inspector Walgreen now begins to bait his trap by burning nine tana leaves, and Karis immediately heads towards the Norman home. Amina is awakened by his approach and hypnotically wanders into the yard. Karis recognizes her as the carrier of Ananka's soul, and Amina, Amina faints as Karis picks her up and takes her away. The abduction is witnessed by Mrs. Blake, Amina's guardian, who phones Tom to alert him. Tom immediately sets out in pursuit while Mrs. Blake heads to the Norman house and tells her story to Inspector Walgreen, Sheriff Elwood, and a, num a large group of volunteers. Karis arrives at the mill and presents Amina to Yusuf Bey. Bey recognizes the birthmark on her wrist as a symbol of the priest of Arkham. Amina awakens and the priest informs her that she is indeed the reincarnation of Ananka. Yusuf Bey now begins to admire Amina's beauty and cannot deny the temptations he feels to keep her alive as his bride. He decides to use the tana leaves to keep her young and beautiful forever, which enrages Karis. Before Yusuf Bey can give Amina the fluid, the mummy knocks the cup away and exacts his vengeance on the priest who falls out a window to his death. Tom Hervey now arrives and witnesses the death of the priest. He rushes up the stairs to the mill, but is met by Karis. A struggle ensues, and Tom is quickly overwhelmed. Karis attempts to escape with Amina, and the mob pursues the mummy and his princess into the nearby swamps. In Karis's arms, Amina slash Ananka is now aging rapidly. They are chased deeper and deeper into the swamps and now begin to sink into the bog. Tom's last anguished sight of Amina is that of a 3,000-year-old Egyptian princess as Karis and Ananka disappear under the water, united at last in death. You know, that that synopsis makes the movie sound better than it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same exact thing. <laughs> I will say this. I did like this a little bit better than Mummy's Tomb because there was at least there was at least a story going on. It wasn't just stock footage <laughs> for half yeah. of it. Because I mean one of the first things I I did like the setup with uh, Amina having this uh, sort of psychological torture about Egypt. That stuff I thought was very interesting, and I actually did enjoy that. Loved the ending, because I thought it was actually genuinely creepy. And when she, you know, sinks into the water, that's actually um, 
that something about that was actually kind of uh not sad so much as it was um you know sort of heartbreaking for the character of tom uh so that stuff i did like but otherwise very routine movie yeah yeah, and very similar to the previous one where you've got Yusuf Bey falls in love with her and wants to make yeah. her immortal. It's like, couldn't you do something more original? You did that already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this one I was sort of I was sort of in and out of uh, for a little bit, but um, I did like John Carradine as the priest. I did like that. He, yeah, he was awesome. It was so good to see him. He was so amazingly young in this movie. He was. Yeah, I mean, and this wasn't too long before. I think it was a year before House of Dracula, because House of Dracula was forty-five, wasn't it? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So okay, but I, I do have to say, when he falls out the window, I was laughing at the dummy. It was because it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. Yeah, there was a lot of good things in this, although. You know, I think one of the criticisms I've seen is that rather than being in the shadows, the mummy is out in the open, just, you know, wandering around the countryside. Just wandering, just wandering around. Although I, there is one scene with him I did like is when he shows up at the farm and he kills the farmer and the camera, the camera doesn't cut away to the actual killing. The camera still plays right outside the barn. We just hear the sounds of his death and we cut to the wife inside. She runs out, sees that her husband is dead. I actually did like that. That was actually somewhat effective. It was one of the few effective scenes in the film. Oh, and I did like the museum scene quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was good. Yeah, there was a lot of, of good things in this movie. Um, yeah. You know, I did feel like the pacing, I don't know, I, I just kept looking at the clock when I was watching I it. I did like, too. When is this going to be over? <laughs> I did too, because even though this movie is only an hour long, it was very slow, very slow moving. Um, right. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. Did you notice that uh, after the museum scene, uh, the mummy had a blood stain on his chin? I did not notice that. Yeah. So apparently, I did notice. It. I'm like, I'm like, what the hell? It's like, it's like, I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, wait a minute. Is the mummy bleeding? And then, in looking up some trivia, I noticed that uh, apparently, when Lon Chaney broke the glass, the prop man forgot to replace it with breakaway glass, so it cut his chin. And it oh. just and it just appeared in the movie. It just so it, they just they didn't fix it or anything like that. So so he has a little <laughs> bit of blood on his chin. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Oh my god, I felt bad for Lon Chaney in this movie. Although yeah, I thought he yeah. he portrayed the mummy with a little bit more emotion, which yeah, we've I, never I, really I, seen. Yeah, I yeah I I feel that way too. Yeah, I would agree with that. But you know the poor guy, he's carrying the woman. He's he's limping even when he's not carrying the woman. They're making him walk up and down that I guess that was like a track for mining carts or something. Yeah. And and he's gonna go up. And so you gotta watch the whole scene of him walking up it, then the whole scene of him walking down. And I, I like you said earlier, you know, he almost dropped the woman. I thought he was yeah. gonna take a header down that thing. <laughs> yeah, apparently yeah, I think this was the one where um where where the actress had said that uh Lon Chaney was drunk on this movie yeah. throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and in some scenes there did have to be a stunt double, which I couldn't really tell which was which, but uh so they cover that well, I suppose. But uh yeah, yeah. I mean he looked like he was gonna drop her many of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I just felt so bad for him in this. Yeah. No wonder he was drunk the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only way yeah. you could get through it. Honestly, yeah. And well and to think that he did two of these in one year because both this one and Mummy's Curse both came out in 1944. This one coming out in right. July of that year and then Curse coming out in December of that year. 
Right. So the, there probably was an economical reason for them to do that too, I would imagine. You know, like you said, not only are they churning it out like a factory, but, yeah. you know, what the heck, we've already got everything and everybody together. Let's just you know, make another I one. Have, I have to wonder if they shot these two back to back in the same period. Something tells me that maybe they did. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I grew up north of Boston. I don't believe there are any swamps in Massachusetts. Do you? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's news to me. <laughs> yeah, that was just, and of course now we're, you know, well into the 1970s here, yet everything still looks like the 1940s. Yes, yeah, yeah, this movie apparently takes place two years after uh, Mummy's Tomb, <laughs> so I'm like, <Yeah>. okay, <laughs> so so theoretically it's 1972, and Curse of Mummy, it gets even worse, <laughs> which we'll get right. to. <laughs> oh my God, well, now one thing I thought was interesting was that they changed the name of the the priests uh, from... What was it? It was, uh, uh, wait, let me look at my notes. Oh, the priests of Karnak, they're now the priests of Arkham. And it's Arkham, A-R-K-A-M, so there's no H. But I wonder if that was a, a call or a shout out to H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I didn't obviously notice was that. popular. Yeah. So that was, that. I thought that was interesting because they kept saying it. Now, one other thing that I thought <laughs> yeah. was bizarre, the dog. Did, did the dog sound like his name was Penis? Every time they call him, yes! they're like, come on, Penis. Yes! <laughs> I thought I was hearing things. I had to keep rewinding it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like. So I watched this. Uh, so I watched this on um, on my um, on my computer, and like, I was like, I was doing something at the same time when 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 this one scene came up, and like, I'm typing something. All of a sudden, I hear, "Come on, penis, let's go!" And like, I did like a double take. I was like, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man that oh was, my gosh I, I didn't watch it with the subtitles so i didn't get to see what the dog's actual name was but it sounded right, a lot right. like penis it really did <laughs> <laughs> one thing i thought was cool though where um was it Ma, not marta isabel the chick in it whatever her name was she every time she faints and sees the mummy she wakes up and she's got a gray streak in her hair and it just gets more and more as she's she's going that's one that yes. i had to rewind because i was like wait a minute i don't remember her having gray yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah that was one of the scenes i i did i liked how she was aging as he got closer and closer to the um as he got closer and closer to the water like so that i was like because that was actually i actually did find that genuinely pretty creepy i'm like oh wow that's actually pretty good <laughs> yeah but but even then but like before he was bringing her into the water she just just have that gray streak yes. on her hair yeah, which I thought was kind of cool because they don't the the only time they brought attention to it was when Tom, like she was at the sheriff's office because they found her you know passed out in front of the the mansion or whatever, and um he looks at her, and then they do like a close up of her head with the streak and she's like what is it and he goes uh it's nothing, <laughs> so yeah. he noticed it but she didn't yeah yeah so uh, yeah overall this was you know not the greatest movie it was not probably a little bit better than the previous one yep just a little bit yep but i, I, mean, I love in oh sorry go ahead no no, no I, I mean you know again not not the worst of the of the bunch but i mean it um certainly certainly not as good as mummy's hand and definitely not as good as the original at all yeah and like I said, I think Cheney brought a lot of more emotion to Karis this time around. Yes. Which was evident in his acting. So I that, agree. that was some good acting there. Yep. I, I do love the fact, though, in old movies where the college kids are like 30 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I know. It, it, it's sort of like the Grease syndrome, I call it, because, like, even in Greece. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> there was one cool scene where the security guard is sitting there, uh, you know, does his rounds. He sits down. He's like eating a sandwich or something and listening to the radio. And the radio show was about evil and murder and, you know, you're going to die pretty soon. And I just thought that was great foreshadowing for the fact that the mummy was going to come in and, and kill him. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So that I thought that was well done. But uh, yeah. again, I think the pacing was a little off in this movie. I thought so, too. Yeah, it was incredibly slow. Oh, my God, it was painfully slow. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, f- Chris, final thoughts on The Mummy's Ghost? Um, I think a little bit better than Mummy's Tomb, but uh, certainly not as good as uh, Mummy's Hand nor the original. Um, so I probably I probably would rank it at number three you know, in the series, but I wouldn't... But but calling it number three is not exactly a high compliment with this because I I didn't think it was that particularly good of a movie. Yep, I agree. It's good easily. You don't have to watch this one. I think when yeah. you when you're trying to get kids into horror movies, I think this exactly. might actually make them not want to watch horror movies. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Okay, so let's move on to The Mummy's Curse, the last of the sequels from 1944. Who's Caris? It's, it's so hard to explain. Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. Hey, looks like the imprint of a man's body. A big man, too. Unless I'm mistaken, a mummy was buried here. In a room beneath the chapel, I found the bodies of of freshly murdered men. Betty, what happened? He brought me here. I was looking for you. Master, I meant no harm.
The Southern Engineering Company is trying to drain the local swamp for the public good. However, the efforts are being hampered by the superstitions of the workers who believe the area to be haunted by the mummy and his bride. Two representatives of the Scripps Museum, Dr. James Halsey and Dr. Ilzor Zandab, arrive on the scene and present their credentials to the head of the project, Pat Walsh. They've come to research for the missing mummies buried in the swamp years earlier. Their conversation is interrupted by the news that a workman has been murdered in the swamps. Evidence at the scene convinces Halsey that the murderer has found the mummy of Karis. Later that evening, Zandab sneaks into the swamp and meets Rageb. Rageb is a disciple of the Arkham sect, and Zandab is secretly a high priest. The follower killed the worker that unearthed Karis and has taken the immobile monster to a deserted monastery. Zandab explains the legend of Karis and Anaka to Rageb as he brews the tana leaves, giving instructions on their use. The old sacristan of the monastery intrudes on their ritual and is promptly executed by a newly risen Karis. Meanwhile, the mummy of Ananka rises from the swamp after being partially uncovered by a bulldozer during the excavation. She immerses herself in a pond and the mud is washed away, revealing an attractive young woman. Cajun Joe finds the girl wandering listlessly in the swamps, calling out the name Karis. He takes her to Tante Berthe, the owner of the local pub who aids the girl. Later, Karis finds her there and murders Berthe as Ananka flees into the night. Ananka is soon found lying unconscious beside the road by Halsey and Betty Walsh, the niece of Pat Walsh. While in their care, and although apparently suffering from amnesia, the girl displays an incredible knowledge of ancient Egypt. Her stay at Halsey's camp is again interrupted by the appearance of Karis, and the kindly physician, Dr. Cooper, is killed. She again takes flight, and Halsey and the others go in search of her. Fleeing the monster after he attacks and kills Cajun Joe, she comes to Betty's tent seeking refuge. However, Karis is not far behind. He enters the tent and whisks away his princess, leaving the horrified Betty unhurt. Betty asks Rageb for his help in finding Dr. Halsey. The treacherous disciple has other ideas and takes her to the monastery instead. Zandab, having already administered the town of fluid to the young Ananka, is angered to find Rageb making advances on Betty. He orders her death, but Rageb kills him instead. Halsey arrives, tracking them from the camp after finding Betty's tent destroyed. A struggle ensues between Rageb and Halsey until Karis intervenes. The creature, sensing Rageb's betrayal, advances on his former ally. Locking himself inside a cell-like room, Rageb is powerless to do anything but watch as Karis literally brings down the walls on the two of them. Halsey, Betty, and the rest of the and the rest find the mummified remains of Ananka in the adjoining room. Not even that synopsis could make this movie good. <laughs> no, I, I kind of glazed over just listening to that. Uh, yeah, I mean. This is probably the worst one of the series, I have to say. It, uh, you could tell that they lost a lot of steam by this point, and there was just nothing but to just do a retread of what we've already seen. Right. Yeah. It, it just didn't make any sense. Of course, now we're probably into the 1980s, if the timeline yeah. is to actually, be gone by. Well, actually, I did the math. It would be 1997. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And... I, it's, I think it went from Massachusetts to Louisiana or something. And, yeah. I, you uh, know what? Honestly, I took, because this one was such a chore for me, I barely took any notes that I can't remember where it took place. Oh, my God. I, the same thing. I have, high, I have like five lines of notes, and that's it. <laughs> I have five lines of notes, too. And, and most, of it, most of it is just like some facts. Sequel to The yeah. Mummy's Ghost. Feels like a retread. This is boring. This is routine. <laughs> It's all I <laughs> One of my notes is, the lesson we learn, anybody who wears a fez is bad. Basically. 
Oh man, we get another recap, and yeah, uh, I don't know this movie. I felt again. I felt bad for Lon Chaney Jr. He was definitely yeah. slumming it in this movie. Yeah, oh, yeah, without a doubt, he 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 phoned it in and then some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't think there's too much to talk about. There's not a lot. Uh, nothing stood out to me as yeah. a great scene. Yeah, uh, yeah, no. Honestly, this is where this is where this movie and Ghost sort of blended for me that I couldn't have, because it's they're essentially the same plot. You both both movies deal with a woman who knows a lot about archaeology. Both movies right. uh, have that same similar theme. She knows a lot about Egypt. We've seen this over and over again. Right. And you know, just the 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 plot of the guys having to drain the swamp. The, like, all right, I they wanted an excuse to get these characters out of the swamp. So yes, that kind of made sense, but it just wasn't interesting. It wasn't interesting, no, and it's really a shame because uh, again, you got Lon Chaney Jr. and again, it's it's universal. So you know, you think of all these movies as classics, and and you know, and you go into these, and you don't want to not like this. You want to like these movies because they are deemed classics, but. Yeah, this one just did not work. No, it didn't. And of course, we have more flashbacks in it, too. Of course we do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this. This is the first movie in the series to not end in a burning building. <laughs> Finally. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that mummy, they burned him and fried him. He's He's been killed, I think, more ways than Jason. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've... <laughs> There's very little to say. It's just, <laughs> just, a, just, a, just a routine um, mummy movie, unfortunately. Right. So I guess uh, to sum everything up here, I think we can we can safely say I can safely speak for both of us when I say the first one, the mummy, is a definite classic. You yes. got to see it. And if you want to really get into some mummy action with the bandaged mummy walking around, the mummy's uh, hand and the mummy's tomb are worth watching. But the curse Absolutely. and the ghost are just not. Yeah, no, I I would definitely agree with that. Mummy's the best. Uh, Mummy's Hand is the best sequel, without a doubt. Um, and uh, you know the rest either go from mediocre to just not good. Right, right. <laughs> okay, folks. So we did, we covered quite a bit here. We covered five movies. So Chris, I just want to thank you again for joining us and continuing on this primer to get young people into horror movies and and also helping them to avoid the not so great movies <laughs> right <laughs> well thank you as always for uh, for the invite back this is always very fun to do cool and uh when, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online sure uh so my website is www.storiesmotion.com there you can find all my films and uh other projects i've been working on i am also on facebook at stories in motion and also on instagram at uh stories in motion Excellent, excellent. You've got a lot of stuff going on too. You got a lot. Of, your films are, are gaining traction. Yeah, yeah. I've been very blessed with that. I mean, right now things are a bit um, quiet due to COVID, so I can't really, unfortunately, get a new project off the ground. Though I do have a lot of plans for twenty twenty one, and I've uh, been writing a lot. So that's so. I guess that's the one benefit of this year. And I got to watch uh, all these great movies that we're discussing. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, and I want to thank the listeners for joining us on this journey. If you want to chime in about this or any other episode, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. 
Don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, as well as our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss spaghetti westerns and Shaw Brothers movies. If you'd like to go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review, that would really help people to find our shows. Next time on this Universal Horror Primer series, Chris, I think we'll be covering The Invisible Man and its sequels. That's great. All right. Yep. So uh, I advise the listeners to go watch them and then join us on that discussion. Class dismissed. Thank you.